0: If you've never
1: been to Matamoros, Mexico, just across the border from Brownsville, Texas, Felicia Ranhel sampanaro wants you to know what the city's park looks like. Because it's not a park anymore. It's a makeshift home for people trying to get to the U.S.
2: Whole families live out in what used to be Matamoros' park. And at its height, like a month or two ago, we had over 2,000 people living in this park and this small space, one on top of the other. So there's also trash. There's only four porta-potties for all of these people. So it's just really unsanitary. And then you're living outside amongst the cartels that run those cities.
1: Cities like Matamoros and Reynosa, which also has a large encampment. The camps have grown and shrunk over the years, largely depending on U.S. immigration policy. The people living in them often come from places like Venezuela or Honduras. Some have endured terrifying journeys just to get to Mexico.
2: They don't have tents. So what they've done is they have repurposed trash bags and blankets, and they've gotten like sticks or branches, and they've dug the branches into the ground like you would a tent.
1: Felicia runs the Sidewalk School, which provides education, medical care, and other assistance to families seeking asylum in the US. And since January, that has also meant providing tech support. Because if you want to apply for asylum, you have to do it through an app, an app called CBP One from Customs and Border Protection.
2: Our government wasn't putting out the information on one, how to even download it, which is the most important part. Um, but two, how to use it once it's downloaded.
1: So Felicia went from camp to camp, climbing on stumps to see over crowds, shouting instructions through a megaphone.
2: People want the information, it's just like the U.S. government and the Mexican government are not providing it. So what is happening is you're depending on a little bitty NGO that no one has ever, ever heard of to go from city to city, from camp to camp, to shelter to shelter, And repeat over and over again to all new groups of people every single week. This is how you use the app.
1: 1,100 miles away, in the city of Nogales, which straddles the border between Arizona and Mexico, Gia Del Pino is doing similar work. Her group, the Kino Border Initiative, runs town halls for people who need help with the app. Gia says the problems she sees generally fall into four buckets.
0: One, you have folks who have never downloaded the application who are learning about it for the first time. Two, you have people who are stuck in creating an email account or recovering their Apple ID. Then there's the photo
1: question. CBP-1 requires that applicants take a live photo.
0: You can't use an old selfie. And the app seems to have trouble with darker skin tones. And that is one of the glitchier aspects of this entire application because the AI, the camera, does not pick up certain phenotypes. And um, interestingly enough, when you get to that step, there is a model who's facing, who's who's on the screen. She's a beautiful white model. Uh, And you, it's just, (laughs) it's surreal to watch an indigenous Mayan woman trying to take a photo facing this white model, and the camera does just not pick up her skin complexion. And that, Gia says, is often where the app crashes. So imagine doing this for yourself as a parent, and then trying to take your kid who is hyperactive and cannot sit down to try to take this photo that's just not working. It's, it's, it's completely frustrating and demoralizing for people. That's the fourth bucket. People who were using the app over and over, but not having any luck. They've already done this. Um, they have not had any luck in trying to secure an appointment. But yet they have to every day reapply, take the photo, take their kids' photos to once again be met with, we've received your information, but there is no availability. Today
1: on the show seeking asylum via app, how technology created a new hurdle for people fleeing to the U.S. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around.
4: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. For the past three years, a blanket expulsion order has been
1: in effect at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's known as Title 42, and hundreds of thousands of people have been turned away from the U.S. because of it. If you had help, if you knew where to turn, you could seek asylum and get an exemption that would let you enter the country. They would either get the help of an NGO,
3: of a shelter, or of an attorney, and who would intercede on their behalf.
1: That's Arelise Hernandez, a reporter for The Washington Post, who covers the border. And
3: at the discretion of these individual port directors, they would let a certain number of people obtain these exemptions. The idea is that once they're in the United States, that within a year they would have to apply for asylum.
1: And so what would you say the the sort of issue was that CBP or the administration was trying to streamline? Like, were they saying, well, if we create this app, we can make this what a more a more even system, a more standardized system, a more streamlined system. I think that the argument the Biden administration has made in
3: the past and in statements to us at The Washington Post is that they were looking to excise, if you will whatever meddling or extortion that might take place in that extra, in that interaction, right that exchange between the migrant and and the port. It was enough for the administration to cite that as a reason, that there were unscrupulous attorneys, that there were folks who were charging migrants and, and you know, getting more money out of them and promising them, you know, their name at the top of the list. All these kinds of different scenarios that were making it, I guess, if you will, undemocratic um, or unfair, and that this app would sort of cut out the middleman, if you will, uh, and and put everyone, funnel everyone sort of through this one system.
1: And so in January, the CBP-1 app was rolled out for people seeking asylum and an exemption to Title 42. The app itself had been around for a few years, but was tailored more toward international travelers and companies bringing cargo into the country, not people searching for a decent internet connection in a Mexican park.
3: It was glitchy, uh, apart from sort of the accessibility issues, which is Wi-Fi, which is, you know, how do I get a phone that is capable of carrying this application? Um, it was issues with language access, for example. At, at the beginning, the app wasn't available in Haitian Creole, and there are thousands of Haitian asylum seekers right now in, in northern Mexico and and then that were trying to figure this all out. Uh, there are problems with the photo part of this, where you have to take a live photo and it wouldn't detect darker faces. The big one that I came across several weeks later was this idea that families uh, weren't easily able to get the entire family register, so every member of that family. So mom and dad would get an appointment, and they'd show up with the six, five members of their family. And at the very early aughts, you know, port directors at their discretion were allowing these folks to pass, but at a certain time, they started enforcing the rule that had been in play all along, but simply, you know, had not been enforced and said, no, mom and dad, you know, little kid needs an appointment as well, and we're turning them back down. And that's when I started hearing sort of the loudest screaming about this.
1: Can you tell me about some of the people you met who are trying to use the app? Like, by the time you met them, and I assume they were where, Matamoros, Reynosa, like, what what had they been through just to get there? Oh, what
3: hadn't they been through? <laughs> the migrants that I, I met over the course of several weeks in Reynosa and Matamoros had, you know, similar stories. Many of them were Venezuelan, many of them were Haitian, and folks who, on for Haitians, for example, had lived perhaps a few years in South America, in Chile, in Brazil, in these other places— um, and had started the journey north, which meant crossing uh, the Darien Jungle. El Darien. And if you've heard any reports about this place, it's it's like it's like hell, right? There, there are bodies of raging rivers. You can die of from the wildlife, from the bandits, from you know any number of, of situa- dangerous situations. It just wasn't a place that. Ten years ago, people would even think of crossing and now has become the major thoroughfare for for folks uh, streaming from South America. For the Venezuelans in particular, um, that was also their route. Some of them had come, you know, had already migrated to Colombia and then were coming north. But all along the way, right, it's it's encountering uh, military officials or, or officials who might extort them or might, you know, move them from one point to further south, like to Tapachulas, like some people would reach Mexico City or get a few north and didn't move back, um, get robbed, <laughs> sleep on the streets, run out of money, um, encounter folks who were less than helpful um walking for miles and miles and miles. I mean, what didn't... It, it, there wasn't a scenario that I hadn't heard that didn't sound completely awful.
1: There will be people listening to this on a podcast thinking like, what? It's an app on your phone. I can put an app on my phone in in 12 seconds. And I think they might not understand the barriers that a lot of these people face to just getting, getting the app, getting a phone. Like, How hard is it to do that? Obtaining a phone in and of itself is
3: is a barrier to entry because, like I said, they have money sort of at the beginning of this. I'll take, for example, one couple that I met from Honduras who had fled very quickly after being threatened by gangs in the country and they stopped paying extortion fees for their business and so they fled. They uh, sold what they had, you know, the little that they had and just took that money and started the journey with a certain amount of cash. Right. But all along that journey, you're paying drivers to drive you from one border. You're paying for bus tickets or you're robbed at a certain point and you you don't have anything or you start to sell a few things on the road and then you get a little bit more. This couple in particular arrived penniless to the border right like after going through all these things you you don't have a scent to your name and this couple started selling candy on the streets in Reynosa to be able to buy a second hand maybe even the third hand phone at a pawn shop uh, that had the capability we're talking about a smartphone not just one that you can make calls with but a smartphone to be able to download the app and then you know The next barrier to entry being how do I find a stable Internet connection and buy data credits to be able to run uh,
1: the Internet on this phone? There was one detail in your story about a young man, I think his name was Oliver, who was seriously hurt trying to get a Wi-Fi signal.
3: Yeah, um, I I met Oliver while he was lying prone in in a bed uh, trying to recover from the burns that had uh, all around his back. But essentially the story he told me is a young man from um, Honduras that he was searching for a signal in the pre-dawn. Hours, which is when most people wake up to begin accessing, uh, the application because it's sort of the, the lottery opens at 8 AM. So folks start way earlier and he had uh, sort of climbed, uh, the roof of where he was and just didn't see the low hanging power lines and, and ran right into it and was electrocuted. And, uh, he, people had left him for dead. He had been with a couple other people. He'd been left for dead. And, but eventually he woke up in a hospital with severe burns uh, down his his back and his neck. And he he told me that, you know, he, he just wanted to get to his mom. His mom is somewhere here in, in the United States. In fact, I can say I later found out and got notification from people that he made it to the United States and is getting treatment now for uh, oh, the wow. burns that
1: he suffered. So... If you have a phone, if you get a signal, then what? What are the hurdles there? Well, um, depends how digitally savvy you are. Some people
3: are, uh, some of these migrants who are coming from countries like Venezuela or, you know, folks that have these platforms are familiar with it, but you've gotta learn how to navigate and you're you're essentially putting in all the information you would otherwise give to a border patrol agent when asking for asylum or being processed into this app. So date of birth, uh, taking pictures of your passport, taking, you know, new, fresh pictures, geolocation, that's the other thing that happens. You cannot access the app and ask for an exemption unless you're north of Mexico City and south of the border. Um, And so one of the funny things, I didn't get into this in my story, but one of the funny things, if you're close enough to the United States, you'll start picking up geolocation from the U.S. And if the phone... If you're accessing the app and it's trying to geolocate you and it shows you that you're in the United States, it blocks you from uh, even accessing the the system. I tried to get through you know, I'm not applying for asylum, but I tried to get through some of the pages. and it's several pages of of information. and then, of course, the photo and all of that to be ready by the time, you know, that it opens and you try to get a calendar appointment. And it'll show you, like, what's available. And then you're just waiting to see <laughs> if, if it'll say confirmed um, and you get a confirmation email from them.
1: Your story mentioned the issues with facial recognition on darker skin tones. People we've talked to who work in nonprofits there have also raised this issue. One of the things that I'm struck with is I have spoken extensively to researchers who have worked on this issue for a long time. It is well known that AI can have trouble, facial recognition can have trouble on darker skin tones. I am surprised that that this was still a problem, that like, why is this still a thing? Why didn't CBP anticipate that?
3: Well there it, it that you could ask that question about any number of the functionalities of of this application right through my reporting what when most people who've had to deal with this have told me is that it just appears that CBP rolled this out without having beta tested it without having Um, You sort of worked out or thought it through all the different scenarios that it it was in some ways, as one NGO leader put it to me that, you know, they designed it completely divorced from the realities that people actually live and within the realm of possibilities of like, okay, didn't imagine that someone in a migrant camp on the banks of the Rio Grande would not have, you know, a strong Wi-Fi signal to be able to, you know, get through this application.
1: CBP disputed that its app doesn't work as well on darker skin tones. I
3: will. I will say I heard recently, and I have independent confirmation that the app developers were recently, in fact, in Matamoros at the camp, uh, trying to see exactly how this is working. The question is, was this done? Prior to, and I think some of the reporting that my colleague Nick Miroff has done also in his piece about this technology is that this initially wasn't even designed for processing migrants. This was something for commercial purposes for folks who are, you know, doing international trade and and trucking and whatnot. That's what it was
0: actually designed for.
1: Yeah, when I, when I went and looked on CBP's websites, I have these, like, glossy videos about the app.
0: CBP1 is an application that allows travelers to access a variety of CBP services from their mobile device.
1: But it's it's clearly targeted at, like, going on a business trip. Like, it, it does not seem like it's there for people looking for an exception to Title 42. No, no, and, and
3: the reporting shows that it, it initially wasn't designed that way, and, you know, there were steps that are obvious now, weren't taken to uh, imagine, maybe a failure of imagination, the kinds of scenarios in which people would be trying to access it.
1: After the break, how the migrants using CBP-1 are, in effect, beta testers.
5: Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus Show page on Apple Podcasts Or visit Slate.com slash Amicus Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much.
4: If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output, bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning.
1: One thing that you have mentioned and others have mentioned as well is the fact that the app, at least at one point, and I'm curious whether this has changed, would not allow families to kind of be processed as a group, that individuals had to each um, enter their information into it. It, How has that worked and has that changed at all? Yeah, there are
3: a couple of little tricky dynamics to that. Because there are only 700 to 800 slots across uh, eight ports of entry and tens of thousands of people trying to access this, those appointments go quickly. Literally, it opens at eight, and by 8:05, all of those slots for that particular day are filled. And Matamoros has like a a larger share of them in general because there there are more people trying to access. So, one of the things that folks realize is that they had a better chance of obtaining an appointment date if they registered as a single individual. They wouldn't get bogged down or slowed down if they had to enter, you know, Johnny's name or little Jose or, you know, Marisol in the process of trying to compete for one of these slots. And that's what people did. And early on, particularly at the Matamoros Port of Entry, um, they would show up as a group. Mom, dad had got appointments and port director officials there would say, you know what, okay, fine. And, And they would let them go. Part of it was because there wasn't a lot of education on how this is supposed to work and people are just trying to get their appointments. Later, so it became more clear. And again, this, this is a lack of education, a lack of sort of orienting people as to how this works. It, it, there is a capability within the app to register as a group so that you wouldn't get bogged down having to do those things. Um, but again, functionally, it still lost you precious time and be able to compete to get one of these uh, appointments. And so people chose to do it this other way. So there are there are plenty of cases where, you know, the husband, When they came, when they started enforcing the rule that everybody had to have an appointment or at least everyone's name had to be registered, that mom and dad would make a choice right there at the bridge, and dad would go, mom and child would return to the camp, or mom would go, dad and child. Usually, it was dad because at least dad can you know set up shop in the U.S. and start collecting resources to be able to you know make that entry a little bit more smoothly. When
1: and and eventually when that time came. For its part, the Biden administration is aware of the issues with CBP-1. Several NGOs are in frequent communication with the government and the app developers. So that that's a process that is
3: continuing. Like I said, I, I know for a fact that the app developers were in Mexico recently and heard some of this, the question is, you know, how quickly they're able to implement these various changes. But it, it, for example, I, you know, I'm in communication with a couple of Venezuelan mothers who, who reached out to me who are still in the camp in Matamoros who have not uh, had a chance to, to set an appointment. And they've been in this
1: particular camp for five months. One of the women told Aurelis that the app kept kicking her out she's saying, "I don't know if it's collapsing because so many people want to use it. I don't know yeah. They need to treat the cases with more care because there are cases that really deserve that.
3: I will say, um this is it's, this is like. I don't know, version 2.0 of the Matamoros migrant camp. Uh, and I was there when it what it looked like under Remain in Mexico. And, you know, equally large, equally desperate situations, but totally different set of of circumstances. At the very least, right, in this scenario with the application, they have a little bit seemingly, right, a little bit more control over what Happens, right? Like, whereas with remain in Mexico, you get a date, and when the pandemic hit, it was unclear whether court was going to continue. And I followed the case of one woman in particular and her family. She was eighteen months in that camp, and I, you know, had a sort of phone relationship. We would send voice memos to each other, and she absolutely physically and mentally deteriorated over that uh, time. She's now in California. Um, Fighting for her asylum case. But, you know, five months compared to 18 months is a huge difference. Nevertheless, um, it's any minute more than you have to spend in northern Mexico exposed to the elements exposed to um, criminality. Being a vulnerable person is
1: one minute too long. The Biden administration argues that the app can make it safer to apply for asylum, that someone could use CBP-1 in their home country, wait till they had a confirmed appointment, and not make the dangerous trip to the border first. In some cases, that has happened. But for migrants who are already in the process of traveling, the app is geofenced. So in order to apply, you have to be physically north of Mexico City and south of the U.S. border. I think one of the things and maybe this is just how it happens how all of these things shake out but clearly it seems like the the most desperate people who have sort of endured the most are the ones who are also going to be kind of at the at the bottom of this like chain of technology uh, not having the 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 right tech not having the access like, it just feels it feels like sort of, I don't know, a pileup of bad things.
3: That's certainly reflected in the stories of the individuals that I spoke to and that I spent time with. And um, it's something that I've heard over and over again on multiple trips uh, to the southern border. And that's sort of the I think the main and primary criticism that uh, folks who are not super fans of CBP1 are, which is that. The most vulnerable, right, the one advantage of the way the system acted before is that with attorneys intervening on behalf of these uh, individuals in particularly vulnerable situations. So we're talking about people with very severe diseases that cannot be treated in Mexican hospitals or uh, pregnant women or children, um, you know, there there was one couple that one family I spoke to that didn't, didn't make it in the story, but they had a son who's had cerebral palsy. You know, all these people who fall into these very difficult categories had an advocate and were able, you know, on an emergency basis to get these folks in. Now these folks are lumped in with everyone else and having to go through this process, whereas their circumstances are far more urgent, like Oliver, for example. Um, and and so that's that's a major criticism, that there's no sort of functionality and there's no exemption to the exemption for folks
1: who are in emergency situations. This is something I think we heard from some of the NGO folks, that that the app, I guess, in an attempt to democratize things, has created a flattening where the the dire circumstances of one particular vulnerable person's experience might not be as apparent.
3: Absolutely. And keep in mind that for decades, and it, it is federal law, you know, people who had these situations were simply able to go up to the bridge, tell a CBP officer, these are my circumstances, I am in fear for my life, and were able to, you know, initiate their asylum proceeding and enter into the United States. That's something that just hasn't happened under Title 42, which is why people are having to go this route.
1: One of the perhaps ironies here is that CBP-1 gets bad press from people who feel that the migrants are are mistreated sort of by the app and by this process. And also on the other side, when you have someone like Josh Josh Hawley, GOP senator, saying this is an app for people who are undocumented immigrants to be able to use. And it just sort of feels like this this app is, um, I don't know, an emblem or maybe a place for people to deposit their rage about what is broken about the immigration system.
3: As someone who's reported uh, on immigration for the last couple of years, uh, sort of the tail end of the Trump administration, the beginning of the Biden, I will say that in general, people just Misunderstand the law and these processes so much that it, there's so much conflation, there's so much confusion that you know, I, I don't. I'm not sure that when people talk about these issues or try to encase them within a particular worldview or partisan view, that they're doing so um, with a full understanding of of how all of this is is supposed to work. And and like I said, for decades, right for for. Well, I I don't know how long, maybe 100 years or so, if you were a person who needed help and wanted protection in the United States, you go to the bridge or you cross illegally and you say you surrender. And I say, I am, you know, I'm in fear of my life. That dynamic shifted dramatically under the Trump administration because they were under the assumption that many of these asylum claims were not legitimate. Asylum is very difficult to win in the United States, or to earn, I should say. It is an arduous process. It is difficult. And, you know, I think one of the major arguments that the uh, that Republicans, congressional Republicans in particular, have made is that because the system is so backlogged and you, because you don't have asylum officers and immigration judges moving these cases along, it essentially is giving permission to this person to continue to remain in the country with some kind of permission, but essentially illegally or rewarding them for having crossed between ports of entry. Um, whereas from the perspective of the people who who do make it and who get this humanitarian exemption, for them, they are in a safe place and able to continue forwarding their lives. I know for a fact, for example, the woman that I followed for 18 months at the camp, um, is in her process. She's very serious. She has, you know, her proof or whatever. Still, she's a woman from El Salvador, and according to data from Syracuse University and Track Reports, just eighteen percent of people from El Salvador win their asylum cases. So, even in just explaining that to you,
1: it was very complicated. Title Forty Two expires in May. Any sense of what? happens then like do do thousands more people try to log on and use this thing does the system i don't even know what happens does anyone
3: no and for the benefit of your listeners the biden administration has kept it in part because of lawsuits from uh, republican-led uh legislatures across the country and uh May 11 is sort of the the sunset, the expiration of this. It won't it won't be extended because advocates have argued that it's a violation of asylum rights that we guarantee as federal law. Whereas people along the border, which is where I just came from, one of these communities are expecting the uh, to use their terminology, right? This is not what I would say, but the the floodgates will open and that all of The hemisphere and anyone who's traversing uh, North, South America, even if they're from Europe, Asia or elsewhere, is going to take advantage of this opportunity and come across illegally and and spread into our country. That's sort of the rhetoric that you hear from one side of, of this debate. The truth is, I don't think anyone really knows. So we have to wait to see whether people will continue to use the CBP-1 app Um, and and try their luck to to enter the United States in a way that uh, reassures their, you know, the government that they're here for a specific reason and to seek asylum and other kinds of relief. Or if what, you know, folks on the other side are predicting, which is that, you know, tons and tons of people will overrun the U.S.-Mexico border and see this as an opportunity to sneak across.
1: Do you expect from your reporting that CBP1 is here to stay? I'm not sure. Believe it or not, when you when you talk
3: to people on all sides of of this issue, for the most part, my experience has been that they want people, they want migrants, people who are looking to enter the United States to do so in a framework that is legal or sanctioned by the U.S. government, and that the more avenues that exist for people to do that and for them to know about it, therefore undercuts the power that the cartels have in, you know, promulgating their business and, you know, offering these deals to people to get them across, which are so dangerous Um, You know, there's a huge increase in deaths all across the southwest border, particularly in Texas and and New Mexico and Arizona. Um, Nobody who lives on the border, who loves the border, who reports on the border, I think, wants to see that continue. Um, And as long as there are other options for folks, uh, and if CBP-1 continues to be that option, I think that would be the preference of all involved and uh, there are some improvements that needs to take place and the other part of this is is that there's only so much that the executive can do right immigration enforcement immigration law is the province of the US
1: Congress all right Lisa Hernandez thank you so much for your reporting and for taking the time to talk with me it is my pleasure Carly Hernandez covers immigration and the U.S.-Mexico border for The Washington Post. Gia Del Pino is the director of communications at the Kino Border Initiative. Felicia Rangel-Sampanaro is the director of The Sidewalk School. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You will get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.